Welcome to episode 100. To mark this milestone, we are graced with one of my heroes, Dr. Mary Ellen Bolt. Today, she'll talk about the PSYOP model and the science of reading. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. Our guest today, Dr. Mary Ellen Volt, needs no introduction, but I do want to read her bio. She is a professor emeritus at California State University, Long Beach. And currently, she is the director and reading specialist for literacy intervention and enrichment for a local nonprofit. She is the co-author and author of numerous articles, chapters, and books, including literacy texts and those of the PSYOP series. Dr. Vogt has provided professional development throughout the U.S. and several countries. She served as a visiting scholar at the University of Cologne, Germany. Dr. Vogt is a member of California's Reading Hall of Fame. Dr. Vogt was also the president of California's Reading Association and the International Literacy Association. In 2017, Dr. Vogt was inducted into the Reading Hall of Fame, an international organization of literacy researchers and scholars. On one side, people are advocating for a heavy decoding and phonics approach to reading instruction. On the opposing side is the balanced literacy people. Who's right? What if we said both are? In this podcast, Dr. Vogt graciously shared her PSYOP keynote with us on the podcast. There are moments when she will be reading directly from the articles because she wants to be thorough. But we also strive to make it conversational so it doesn't sound like a lecture. You'll want to listen to the very end when we talk about the role of PSYOP in reading instruction. Before we go to the podcast, I just have one favor. This is the 100th episode that I produce. Actually, it's more than 100 episode, but this is the official 100th episode. If possible, can you please help me get to 100 reviews on Apple? Thank you so much in advance. I am beyond words today. It is very rare that you get to meet one of your living legends. So today I get to introduce you to the one and only Mary Ellen Vogt. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Vogt. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm delighted to be here with you. You have no idea how much you've changed my life because without your work and Diana Chavadia's work and Deborah Short's work, I would still be advocating for kids to be segregated in their own little rooms, their own little closets, their own segregated classrooms, not integrated in classes. And I would be saying kids can't learn. Multilinguals can't learn, but you and your colleagues have really helped change my career. So I owe everything I have today as a, as a teacher, I owe to you. 
Well, thank you so much. And I, I want you to know that uh, you're paying it forward in wonderful ways as, uh, as you're working with people throughout the world and um, your, your um, generous spirit of sharing and, um, and being part of this uh, multilingual family that we have of educators is just uh, a real blessing for all of us. So thank you. And thanks for inviting me to be with you today. Well, you continue to be so generous and you asked to talk about the science of reading. And I was like, yes, you don't even have to ask, when can we get you online? And so today we'll be talking about that. Can you first share a story about working with multilinguals that has informed your practice still? I really can because this story I have shared over the years because it was so pivotal to my development as a teacher of children, but also certainly um, an awareness uh, that I developed as a result of this one little girl. So let me tell you the story of Sokia. Um, this was in the late 1970s and early 1980s. There was a, as most everyone knows, there was a huge influx of students into California schools from Vietnam and Cambodia and Thailand following the Vietnam War. As educators, we were unprepared to teach them. Um, at that time, I was a special education resource specialist and reading specialist in a middle school. Well, one morning, a 12-year-old little girl, tiny little girl named Sokia, entered my classroom with the uh, vice principal. All I was told was that she was from Cambodia and that she knew no English. I later learned that Sokia had no formal schooling, only occasional lessons and a Thai refugee camp that was taught by former teachers who were also in the refugee camp, but they had no curriculum or materials, just the teacher's experience and goodwill and love for children. So Kia and her family had lived for months, if not years, in the refugee camp after fleeing Cambodia uh, before they came to the United States. And now as the school's special ed te resource teacher and reading specialist and former English teacher, newly arrived multilingual learners were placed in my classroom and Sokia was among the first. As my principal said at the time, you know about reading and language, so you're the one to teach these kids. <laughs> None of the schools in Modesto, in the Central Valley of California, where I lived, and had ESL teachers at that time, and I'm not sure we even knew what an ESL teacher was. <clears throat> now, in her first day of school in the United States, and possibly the first day ever that she attended a real school, I placed Sokia in a first period math class that was being taught by a, another teacher that I co-taught with. I was a push-in for this period with my special education students. The teacher had barely taken attendance before the school, you won't believe this, had an unannounced fire drill. Oh, no. I will never forget the look of terror on Sokia's face as the shrill, incredibly loud and seemingly never ending fire alarm rang throughout the school. So I walked over her, to her desk quickly and I took her hand and we lined up with the other students to leave the classroom. She and I walked together hand in hand away from the building out to the field behind the school. And, and the line, and another line, you know, once more, we all waited, teachers and students alike, for the all clear bell. <laughs> when the all clear bell finally rang, loudly blaring once again, we marched back in the, into the classroom and the students took their seats. So Kia had absolutely no idea what was going on, and she looked frightened and confused throughout the drill. I couldn't explain it to her, even with gestures. <laughs> TPR would not work in this case. This school routine taken for granted by the other over 500 students in the school was just about the worst welcome we could have given this new student. So Kia and the many others then who followed her after the Vietnam War 
made me realize that even with years of teaching under my belt and a recently earned master's degree in reading, I really knew nothing about how to teach multilingual learners. I had to learn and I had to learn fast because they were coming in increasing numbers. Now, fast forward about six years later, after finishing my doctorate in language and literacy at UC Berkeley, I moved with my husband, Keith, to Southern California to take a professorship at California State University, Long Beach. Dr. Jana Echevarria, now my co-author of over 20 years of on the SIOP model, she had an office at CSULB that was just a couple doors from mine. Um, I had published an article in the Reading Teacher Journal in 1991 that included an observation protocol for administrators to use uh, when they were visiting classrooms and teachers were teaching the new literature-based reading instruction that followed full language. And Jana had read this particular article. She approached me one afternoon, she came over to my office and she asked if I'd be interested in working in creating a similar observation protocol for sheltered instruction. And thankfully I said, yes, that picture of Sokia was still fresh in my mind. And that's how my involvement with this idea, this new idea of SIOP came to be. Now also at that same time in California, all university faculty were required to participate in professional development to learn about effective instruction for English learners. We still hadn't figured that out more than a decade after Sokia had walked into my classroom. In many ways, working with Dr. Echevarria and Dr. Deborah Short, <clears throat> excuse me, during the research on PSYOPs efficacy, it was really my initiation into the world of ESL, bilingual education, and so forth. So now nearly 40 years after Sokia walked into my life, I so wish I could go back in time and find her and properly teach her and her multilingual classrooms, uh, classmates with SIOP, because over these years, I have finally learned how we can teach these wonderful students. Hearing your story makes me think about uh, the quote from Socrates, like, the more we know, the more we learn, the more we realize how little we know. Right? So absolutely. Yep. So like we, we, you, you were already a teacher, you already had your master's, and then you realized like when you got your PhD, you're like, oh my goodness, I need to know more and more and more. And so you have been helping us learn more and more and more. Oh, well, thank you. I, I had the opportunity at Berkeley to work, work with uh, Willie, Lily, I'm sorry, Lily Wong Fillmore, um, who was a, of course a leader in the field and to sit and to learn and, and learn from her as my teacher um was a real gift um and that was so helpful in my understandings as well it seems like everything has a reason like there's a reason why you met sokia there's a reason why you met jana right and that mm -hmm. reason is clear now 40 years later it's like without that experience we would not have psyop in in our field i i really think that i mean i it was so it was so uncomfortable to me because I considered myself a good teacher, we all do. And to have these children that I just didn't know what to do. Interestingly, another little sidelight, we had a requirement in our middle school that every eighth grader had to pass the US constitution test, even special educa education students and English learners. I mean, as we were calling them, of course, then. And I thought that's impossible. There's no way these kids are gonna be able to pass a US constitution test. And I want you to know every single one of my kids passed that test. Um, and it wasn't easy either, but, 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 you know, learning how to teach these youngsters to be able to navigate not only the system here, but also um, the educational requirements um, 
it was challenging, very, very challenging. And I think all of that, you know, it really did start with Sophia as uh, I started my journey. So right. I'm so glad when you asked that question, because it was like, oh boy, do I have a question? I have, a, I have an example for you. That story is the embodiment of Sayab for me. Sayab really just shows me that yes, all kids can learn. Yes, the constitution test was hard, but there are ways we can make it accessible to students and there are ways we can make content, learning content and language at the same time successful. Let's talk about why the science of reading is now so prevalent and polarizing in the news. That's the million dollar question, isn't it? That is, is we're all wondering about. Well, I wanna take a little walk through history because I think that will be helpful to the listeners um, because we do know a lot about how children learn to read. Sometimes when I read the media reports and so forth, I think, I think we don't know anything about teaching reading and we do, we've known it for decades and decades. Way back in 1908, Edmund Huey wrote a very influential book called The Psychology and Pedagogy of Reading and it guided reading instruction in the United States for decades. In fact, um, it, it was so influential that most of the teachers and the teaching of reading during throughout the world, not just in the US, were really guided by that book. And I want to mention to the listeners that um, Tan has my handout and all of these informations, all of this information and citations and references will be on, the references are on a separate handout, but you'll be able to see even pictures of this particular book that was written way back in 2000, in, in, 2000, in 1908. Um, followed by, this book was followed by Emmett Betts' book in 1946, which was also uh, very influential and it was called Foundations of Reading Instruction with emphasis on differentiated guidance. And here we thought we invented differentiated instruction. And here it's the title of this reading book back in 1946. It was also considered the book on reading until in 1955, Rudolf Flesch came out with the first volley in the reading wars about phonics instruction. And it was titled, Why Johnny Can't Read. Now, Dr. Jeannie Chal of Harvard then published a phenomenally influential book called Learning to Read the Great Debate partially in response to why Johnny can't read in 1967. Now, during my long career as an educator, we've had the report on the Commission of Reading and the Center, uh, uh, and the Center for Reading Instruction, which was a federally funded research center at the University of Illinois. And they published in 1985, Becoming a Nation of Readers, which was huge. Um, another federally funded project and book, Beginning to Read by Marilyn Jager Adams was published in 1992. And of course, the National Reading Panels Teaching Children to Read in 2000. Now, the National Literacy Panel was convened to investigate the research on reading instruction for multilingual learners published, and they published the report of the National Literacy Panel on Language Minority Youth, Children and Youth in 2005. And that was followed by August and Shanahan's lesson from the report of the National Literacy Panel in 2006. Well, this information dump, I think, helps you understand we do know a lot about how children learn to read. And note that I'm only talking about some major influences in the United States. Obviously, we've been on the receiving end of scholars' work throughout the world, such as the late Dr. Mari Clay from New Zealand and her work with reading recovery and so forth. As I said, we do know a lot about how children learn to read and how we need to teach them. So that brings us to the current skirmish with the science of reading. Well, at present, the science of reading, or SOR as it's sometimes called, 
is being widely discussed in both educational and non-educational contexts. And like so much else that's going on in the US and I would say in the world, it has become political. And as you said, Tom, polarizing. Instead of being something new, as it is sometimes portrayed in the media, the term science of reading has been around for, get ready, between 40 and 250 years, <laughs> depending on who you're talking to, according to Dr. Claude Goldenberg, because he has found evidence of the term science of reading going way back 250 years ago. Um, the term is somewhat synonymous with other familiar, frequently used terms in education, research-based and scientifically based. Now I encourage educators wherever you are to investigate the science of reading for yourself because in September of 2020 and of May of 2021, two special volumes were released electronically of the Reading Research Quarterly, which is a prestigious peer reviewed journal that is published by the International Literacy Association. These two journals have over 50 reading research articles that have been written by some of the most respected literacy researchers in the field. And the topic for each article is related to the science of reading, what we know for sure from decades of research about how readers read. Now, my reason for talking about the science of reading in this podcast, and then previously in my keynote for last July's National SIAP Conference, is to try to still the media and political noise about how reading is taught if only among us as educators, and to encourage my fellow teachers and administrators to become knowledgeable voices of reason about teaching reading. I think another reason is to counter the current lack of respect for teacher decision-making and the blatant disregard of decades of scientific research about teaching reading. And finally, I would like to provide you teachers that are listening and the administrators with an alternative to just closing your classroom doors in frustration. Instead, you'll be arming yourself with scientific research to support the choices that you make about teaching reading to all students, including multilingual learners. Now, the 50 journal articles on the topic of the science of reading are available on the ILA website. Some are free and others are available to members and they're all worth uh, the International Literacy Association's membership fee. It's worth paying the fee just to have access to these phenomenal articles. And for those of you who may not be aware, the ILA website is www.literacyworldwide.org. And I, I still, for years it was reading.org and I still use that and I can get on with reading.org as well. So I hope you'll take a look. So what I'm gonna be sharing with you then is some information from a few of the articles that I read. Um, I still have out of 50, a lot to go, but um, the ones that I have read have been absolutely fascinating. And one thing that I wanna mention is traditionally the journal, uh, the journal Reading Research Quarterly is pretty heady stuff and uh, very meaty uh, with research. They have done a really wonderful job, the authors, in making these articles completely accessible to everybody, to parents, to who are maybe non-educators, um, and so forth. They're, 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 they, they will keep you thinking, but they're not like you just dived head along into a lot of statistics and so forth. They're very, very applicable and practical. That was so ex extensive. You brought us through the whole history, and I can't believe that, that the, the idea of the science of reading has been possibly around for 250 years and we're still debating this and this is why like i'm so happy for you to come to the podcast like you said to still the water mm -hmm. so let's talk about what is a simple view of reading 
Well, currently in the media, the term science of reading is being paired with the simple view of reading. And that's why today the science of reading has taken on such importance and I think has become so polarizing. The simple view of reading or SVR is a term that originated way back in 1986 with the work of uh, Goff and Tunmer. And this has been, and it has been used uh, to explain the science of reading to teachers ever since. The simple view of reading was described by Goff and Tunmer through an equation. Decoding times listening comprehension equals reading or D times C equals R. Now, currently, as SVR has explained, the term decoding has been replaced with word recognition and listening comprehension is now language comprehension. So the, the, uh, um, the equation would be, so word recognition times language, let me stop. <clears throat> so word recognition times language comprehension equals reading. Now 35 years old, the simple view of reading is cited more frequently than ever. In fact, Dr. Nels, Nell Duke and Dr. Kelly Cartwright in their reading research quarterly article titled, The Science of Reading Progresses, Communicating Advances Beyond the Simple View of Reading. And this was published in May of 2021. They reported that, I, I can't ever say this without laughing because it cracks me up. They reported that they did a Google search and they found the term simple view of reading paired with the science of reading 71,000 times. Just 71,000 wow. times. <laughs> 71,000 times. Science view of reading is the science of reading. What is worrisome about how the science of reading is being portrayed in this way is that many non-educators and some educators believe that the simple view of reading is the science of reading. In fact, according to DeWitts and Graves, who wrote another article, a wonderful article in the Journal of Reading, they say, quote, the science of reading is the latest iteration of the reading wars, this time brought to national attention by the popular press. To most of the popular media, the science of reading means decoding, phonics construction, and the simple view of reading, unquote. Now it's important to note that one of the original authors of the simple view of reading, Tunmer, in a co-authored article in 2018, he stated, quote, there is much more to understand about reading that is what, than what is represented in the simple view of reading. So he said that in 2018, and my comment to myself was, maybe too little, too late, since this has gone, for so, gone on for so long. So another worrisome issue is, uh, uh, is where the emphasis is and has been for some years in teachers' professional development and reading. Also, commercial reading programs through the years have focused essentially on these two components, word recognition and comprehension for beginning readers, reading instruction, sometimes at the expense of other aspects of learning to read. Now I need to issue a disclaimer because I have been an author on several of these commercial reading programs over the years, and that has been our, our, our emphasis. So that gives you in a nutshell what the, science, uh, what the simple view of reading is all about. Right. It is really surprising because um, they really emphasize like this uh, decoding phonics heavy approach to reading. And I'm always thinking, and I know the other side is like, wait, that's not the only thing. And I, this is where the, the, the contention happens. And thank you, for, right. thank you for telling us about the simple view. I, I really never understood of it. I mm -hmm. never really understood it until now, but that really is a simple view because it can't just be decoding and phonics. Yeah, and and I mean, it, 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 it's the combination of decoding and 
and um, and uh, comprehension, of course. Right. But oh my, as you'll see in a few minutes, there's a lot more out there that we need to be working on with kids. Well, then tell us about the the different view, which is the active view of reading. Well, in their May 2021 article in RRQ, Drs. Duke and Cartwright that I just mentioned a minute ago, they identify three advances that negate the simplicity of the reading process as suggested in the simple view of reading. First, reading difficulties have causes that are not related to word recognition and language comprehension as posited by the simple view of reading. There's a lot of other things that, that can cause kids to have problems with reading. Two, word recognition and language comprehension are not separate elements, but instead they overlap in important ways. And then three, there are many contributors to reading, including self-regulatory processes that play a substantial role in reading. Now in their article, which I highly recommend for all teachers who teach reading, which is basically all teachers, and administrators, Duke and Cartwright introduce a new model of reading based on current and recent research about how children learn to read. You will find a graphic of the active reader model, as, as it is called, in my handout that, ta that Tom will uh, post for you after the podcast. And also that I mentioned the comprehensive reference list for some of these articles that I'm talking about. Now, not surprisingly, the active reader model is considerably more complex than the simple view of reading. It's important to note that the two elements of the simple view of reading, however, are present in the new active reader model. Of course, we need to be working on word recognition and comprehension. So in the active reader model, they describe word recognition as consisting of phonemic awareness, alphabetic principle, phonics knowledge, decoding, and recognition of sight words, all things that we, we know are important. Language comprehension is uh, defined as, as including cultural and content knowledge, reading specific background knowledge, verbal reasoning, such as inferencing and the use of metaphor and so forth, and then language structure, especially in, in English or in all languages, syntax and semantics of the language. Now, an interesting aspect of language comprehension uh, is what Duke and Cartwright refer to as theory of mind. And this refers to a reader's, I'm gonna quote here, ability to understand and take into account one's own and others' mental states. So think about when you are reading fiction and you're able to relate to and have empathy with a, a character's thoughts and actions and feelings. Um, as a reader, this helps us make inferences while we read. And nowhere, of course, is anything like this mentioned in the simple view of reading. And it's such an important part of, of, of working with students and, and an essential uh, way to get kids excited about reading is by making those connections with the characters they read about. Now, essential to these two elements, word recognition and language comprehension, is the reader's self-regulation, motivation, engagement, executive function skills, being able, you know, the, the, the actual work of reading, and strategy use, which is the, the important active part of this model. Note that this corresponds, all of, all of you PSYOPers, to the strategies component of PSYOP, what's going on in the head of the reader. It's about thinking strategically while we read. And just because students are learning English as a second or multiple language, or just because they are not expert readers, doesn't mean that they can't think. And so we're building on developing these strategic reading skills um, in very young children and all the way through um, their learning to become more effective readers. 
Now, rather than viewing word recognition and language comprehension as two separate entities, as in this simple view of reading, as I mentioned before, in the active reader model, Duke and Cartwright explain that they are entwined through what they call bridging processes, which consist of print concepts, fluency, vocabulary knowledge, and cognitive flexibility. And that means being able to navigate letter, sound, and meaning relationships as we read. Now, all of these elements are integrated and in tandem. And this is how we read. Please note, I have given you a very fast little overview of this. And the active reader model is described in quite a bit of detail in the Duke and Cartwright's article. Again, very practical and applicable um, to the classroom. So there are two important point points to remember about this. One, each of the elements in the active reader model has been validated through research. However, the model as a whole, because it's brand new, has not been empirically validated yet. And that is a recommendation from Duke and Cartwright for further research. Secondly, this is a model of reading only. It does not include factors that may impact a person's reading, a person's reading or anything related to reading instruction. It really is what's going on in the, in the head and the mind, and I would say the heart of the reader as they are reading. Uh, Dr. Tim Shanahan's article that he contributed to, the, to this collection of uh, articles about science of reading is titled, What Constitute, uh, Constitutes a Science of Reading Instruction? And this was published in September, last September. And he states, quote, the term science of reading is a bit of a misnomer because those using it today tend to reason directly from basic research to the prescription of instruction. The conversation seems to be less about a science of reading than a science of reading instruction. So take note that in this active view of, of, of reading, the authors um, aren't really talking about reading instruction, they're talking about the process of reading. Uh, Shanahan continues, quote, the arguments over who even has the right to use the term science of reading seems to depend on which instructional approaches one advocates and what one is willing to accept as determinative evidence, unquote. And therein, Lance, therein lies the answer, the quick answer to your question, why is this so divisive? Why is all the polarity? Why is this so divisive? And why are we seeing such differing opinions in the media? It's because of that. You know, who gets to use the term seems, science of reading seems to be dependent on the instructional uh, approaches that they advocate for. Right. So you have it right there, like the concept that of active reading is entwined. I saw an image in my head of uh, threads like that merged together mm -hmm. to come together to, to produce a single rope. And I was like, you oh. know, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because there actually is another model of reading that is the entwined rope, you know, and I think that... Um, uh, Nell Duke and Kelly Cartwright have taken it another step, although they acknowledge and even write about that metaphor um, and that model that has the entwined rope. Yeah, they write about that in that article. Right. So I was lucky to see your slides for your SIAP presentation in July, your keynote, and you talked about uh, there were teacher directives and how they're not really supported by, by research. Again, I guess what you're saying is the things we like to do in teaching and reading instruction is not supported by research. Can you talk to us about that? So one of the things that I've been concerned about for some time is that much of what we know about how children learn to read is often confused with how they should be taught to read. And I think that that is an issue that we all need to take responsibility for, especially because as teachers, and I'm just as 
I'm bad as everybody else. And I use the term bad loosely is that we are really attracted to whatever shiny and new and, and we think is going to be great for kids and the kids will love it and so forth. And sometimes we don't dig far enough to, to be able to find out whether do we really know that it's effective? Yeah, we know the kids are going to love it, but is it really effective? So I don't know a specific number of teacher directives or mandates um, or adopted instructional practices that are unsupported by research. But what I do know is that as teachers, as I'm just saying here, we may not question often enough whether a recommended or a mandated reading method or approach or program has been scientifically validated. And this is precisely the point that Tim Shanahan makes in his recent article in Reading Research Quarterly. He provides a couple of examples, and I've added one of my own, uh, where research findings and instruction related to them are out of sync. And you will see these in the, in the handout because I included that same slide in, in the handout for this podcast. So here's my first example. We know, we have scientific evidence that reading rate impacts comprehension. We know that, okay? But here's the disconnect in the classroom. There's no evidence, no research evidence that timing children's reading makes any difference in their reading fluency, right? And an unexpected consequence of timed readings, which I have personally encountered, is that some children mistakenly believe that reading is about a race to the finish. And this is my, my, my thoughts here, uh, reflecting off of uh, Shanahan's um, <clears throat> note that reading rate impacts comprehension and there's a disconnect with the classroom. Um, I'm working with a student right now who is a fourth grader uh, who has pretty severe reading problems and his special education teacher is timing his oral readings of a passage every week. And he brings them to me because he wants to show her he can read really, really fast. And he's supposed to be able to read really fast without mistakes. And so she's timing him. This practice has been very, very common in a lot of schools. So here's a case of a well-meaning but consequential disconnect between research and instruction. Timed readings are sending my student, uh, what I'm gonna say is a dangerous message. And I'm not exaggerating by using that word. He tries to read everything fast. And in the process, he's guessing at words, not just looking at the letters or syllables or the ending words. And he's doing a lot of word calling, not really reading and thinking about what he's saying when you're reading aloud. So we think about this complex process of, of what's going on in a student's head, a good reader's head when we're reading. He's not finding that because he's so worried about being able to pass the test and reading fast. And I had a, I had a lesson with him yesterday and, and my conversation was, how do you think, what are you doing differently now that we've been working together since the beginning of, the beginning of summer every week? Um, and he said, he said, I'm not reading as fast. And I said, is that bad? And he, he kind of looked like, well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. You know, is that bad? And, um, and he said, no, he said, because I'm getting more words and I'm not guessing. And I thought, hallelujah, he's, get, he's getting that. But he still is being asked to have timed readings every week in his class. And um, anyway, so teaching him to slow down and think while reading has been difficult um, because his teacher has been emphasizing to him that reading aloud fast equals fluent reading. So I think there's that, there's that disconnect between what we know. Um, I mean, we know that, that fluency impacts comprehension, but we don't get there through timed readings. Um, and I think, and, and I, teachers are going to say, well, then how do we get there? Well, we do that through repeated readings. We do that through having kids, um, and I don't mean just read easy books, because that's not what we want them to do to, either. But um, one of the things I've been doing that's been working with him is that I'm identifying words ahead of time that I think he may not know in the books that we're reading or in the passages we're reading. And we talk about those words beforehand. So once we've talked about those words and introduced them to him, 
um, he's not guessing and, and, and it is, and he's slowing down and being more careful. So I think there are methods we can use that um, don't involve having to pull out that timer. So here's another disconnect. We know from research that teaching metacognitive strategies positively impacts comprehension. So the second example of classroom disconnect is teaching reading strategies by having students stop while reading, identify the connections that they are making, such as text to, text to self, text to text, and text to world. While knowing about the kind of connections we make while reading may be useful, there is no evidence that instruction in identifying these three types of connections while reading is beneficial. There's no, there's no research that we don't have research that they're harmful. We just don't have research that that is helping, helping students read better. So teaching how metacognitive strategies work in a more integrated manner, again, called self-regulation in the active model of reading is important, but there's little research that shows which instructional methods for teaching them are effective. So any of you out here who need a doctoral dissertation, <laughs> this is something to think about. You know, how can we effectively, what methods do we have out there that we, we know can be effective in teaching students to be more strategic in their thinking? Um, the one proven process of, of teaching um, strategies is reciprocal teaching by Palinsar and Brown. And that has been researched and that is something we know works. So my third disconnect example <clears throat> is, is this one. And people are motivated by challenging tasks. We know that. We know we, we have research to show that people, including readers, are motivated by challenging tasks. Now, Tim Shanahan has written elsewhere about difficulty levels of texts and the power of motivation for students to read texts that we think might be too difficult for them. He worries that the pervasive use of leveled texts may be limiting some students. I agree, and I've seen that some, with some students I'm currently teaching, they can read more challenging tasks when motivated by a topic and when prepared adequately to read them, as I was just saying, introducing some of that challenging vocabulary ahead of time. I put, now granted, I, I have a wonderful teaching environment in that it's one-on-one, -on -one. what's better than that? I have a great class size. <clears throat> so I have, I take these words that I anticipate may be challenging and I put them on the pocket chart. And then we go through each one of those words, which ones do you know, which ones, and they and can talk about them ahead of time. And then when they find that word in the text we're reading, then they go take that card off the pocket chart and put it on the desk so that they can match it to the, the text that they're reading. Um, you can, can do that with a small group as well um, <clears throat> so that we are, they can read then more challenging text, text, so they can read more challenging texts. Um, especially when they're motivated by the topic, as we know, and when we plan adequately to read them. Um, think about the building background component fiopers. That's, that's why that's there. So here's the point. We need to be careful and not just jump on bandwagons, promote new instructional activities and methods without determining if there is research support for them. Just because a product or approach says research-based doesn't necessarily mean they are. When I heard, um, sorry, listening to that, I really thought about the parallels between reading instruction and writing instruction. And we know that when we have isolated activities for writing and uh, that doesn't help, it doesn't help students learn how to write. And then when we have, when we see language instruction or English instruction as only as grammar, that's not enough. Right? That's right. And so the parallel is very similar. It's like, it's not just enough to have fluency. It's not just to have metacognition. It's really all the together, the robustness of reading instruction together. So we can't just have the isolated activities 
and it's not just about certain set of strategies. Exactly. I've said for years that reading and writing are two sides of the same coin. You know, I become a better writer when I read. I become a better reader when I write. And um, and that's, and yeah, they're two sides of the same coin. They, they, our brain works a little bit differently with each, but in, but in tandem, boy, that, that's, that's the best we can get. So you mentioned PSYOP twice now in the beginning. You, said, <laughs> you called us PSYOPers, and I Either. am a proud <laughs> PSYOPer. Um, can you tell us about where does Psy the PSYOP model fall into, the, into reading instruction? Sure. Um, I think it's important for everybody to, to remember, and those of you who are PSYOPers know this, but uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with the method, um, or with, it's not even a method, it's an, it's an instructional framework, and it's curriculum and materials neutral. In other words, PSYOP reading teachers use PSYOP to plan literacy lessons, just as science teachers use the PSYOP framework to plan their science lessons. So there's nothing magic or different about teaching reading and writing and listening and speaking, um, using the PSYOP framework to plan our lessons. Um, my one-on-one -on -one lessons that I'm teaching right now to students in this intervention program that I'm working in, um, I have content language objectives for every lesson now, and I'm teaching language exclusively pretty much with them, but um, I'm using it even one-on-one, -on -one, I'm still teaching, I'm using PSYOP to teach as, as I'm teaching them. So that, that said, now, interestingly, just last week, uh, Dr. Jenna Acheveria forwarded a research article written by an Egyptian researcher who found statistically significant differences in reading comprehension for those students whose teachers use PSYOP to plan their reading lessons. So this just came across our desks just last week. So people are beginning to look at, well, how does PSYOP impact reading? From our own research, uh, we know that all students, including multilingual learners and native language, language speakers, benefit from PSYOP instruction, whether in content or reading classes. And we are finding almost weekly countries throughout the world. Jenna just found another article about an, um, a research article on PSYOP in Colombia. I think there are 17 or 18 countries that we are aware of, you know, where PSYOP is being used as an instructional framework for teaching all, all various subjects and, and skills. Now, Dr. Claude Goldenberg, who some of you may know, um, uh, was a colleague of ours at Cal State Long Beach before he took off for, for Stanford. And he also had an article in the, or he has an article in the Reading Research Quarterly series regarding the science of reading. Uh, his article's title is Reading Wars, Reading Science, and English Learners. And this was also published uh, in September of 2020. He says, this is quote, the persistent overall poor and I'm going to add reading achievement because he's talking about reading achievement. So the persistent overall poor achievement in reading among English learners, regardless of instructional language, makes it urgent that educators have a clear-eyed view of what we know and do not know about literacy instruction in English for English learners. So what do we know about teaching reading to multilingual learners? <clears throat> well, Goldenberg reports that the majority of multilingual learners in the U.S. are enrolled in English-only programs and they're learning to read in a new language at the same time, as we know. They're not learning to read necessarily in their first language. That's the majority of students who are multilingual learners. Now we have known for years, since way back when in the National Reading Panel report in 2006, that multilingual learners need foundational knowledge that is identical to their native English speaking peers. Phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary, fluency, comprehension. And again, of course, these are all present in the active reader model. And I will also add, 
The active reader model with its focus on foundational skills and other aspects of reading is as appropriate for multilingual learners as for other students, but it's still not enough. They need significantly more instruction in English as also uh, is, as is suggested by Dr. Goldenberg. So think about this. <clears throat> you said, what is the role of PSYOP in reading instruction? Well, we always say PSYOP is not well, we say our objectives and our standards and so forth are, are the what we are teaching. And PSYOP is how we get there. So I'd say the same thing. We, we know we're going to be teaching, hopefully, to this active model of reading and including all these various aspects in an integrated manner. And how we get there, the stepping stone to getting there is, is the PSYOP model. What would this model look like then? What would, what would reading instruction look like? You kind of shared with us already with your tutoring program, but we'd love to see what PSYOP model-based reading instruction looks like. Yes, and again, I'm in with more than one student at a time. <laughs> I'm well aware of how lucky I am with that. Okay, here, here's, here's some thoughts. Um, keep in mind that we know that multilingual learners uh, need much that is the same as Dr. Goldenberg has, has said uh, for native language speakers and, and the phonemic awareness and the phonics, all of the, the big five that, you know, that came forth in the, in the um, report of the National Reading Panel. But I've, as I've just noted, there are some important differences as related to developing multilingual proficiency in English um, and academic language. And that's where PSYOP can come in because the hallmark of PSYOP is the uh, integration of academic language, teaching language at the same time that we are teaching academic content. Um, PSYOP teachers, whether elementary or secondary, teach literacy lessons that include the following PSYOP comp components and instructional features. And I know many of you may be PSYOPers, this is old news to you, but for those of you for whom you do, PSYOP is something new, I'm just gonna run through very quickly the eight components. So PSYOP teachers plan, so the first one is lesson preparation. PSYOP teachers plan lessons carefully, paying attention to content and language objectives, appropriate content concepts, the use of supplementary materials, adaptation of content and meaningful activities. Um, content and language objectives, um, we've known about content objectives for decades. Language objectives now are becoming as, as, uh, as common as content objectives, I think, in, in many classrooms. And for that, we're, we're super happy because we know that that makes a huge difference in terms of the teacher planning for the students, but then also the knowing that having the students know that there's a dual focus on what I'm going to be learning in this lesson. I'm going to be learning content, but I'm also learning uh, language, academic language about that content. The second component of the eight components in PSYOP is building background. PSYOP teachers make explicit links to their students' background experiences, knowledge, and past learning. And we teach and emphasize key vocabulary and literacy and content lessons. Nothing new there. We've known that for years, but it's an important piece of PSYOP. The third component is comprehensible input. PSYOP teachers use a variety of techniques to make instruction understandable including speech that is appropriate to students' English proficiency. We have clear academic tasks and modeling. I used to have a, we used to have a, a slide in our PowerPoint about PSYOP that Janet Chevrya made up and it said, uh, in terms of clear academic tasks, they said, if students don't know what to do, they will find something else to do. <laughs> and I found a picture of a child like standing on her head, like in a classroom and I thought, yeah, they will find something else to do. So we need to be comprehensible for a number of reasons, but, but certainly in our clear academic tasks. The fourth component is strategies. PSYOP teachers provide students with instruction in and practice with a variety of learning strategies. Here we go, going back into the active model of reading. 
Um, the scaffolding instruction is an important piece of this. And even though all of SIOP is basically about scaffolding, we have, uh, we really want to be scaffolding, we want to be conscientiously scaffolding. And there, so there is a feature for it in the strategies component. So we're scaffolding instruction while promoting higher order thinking through questions and tasks at a variety of cognitive levels. Uh, next, we have interaction. SIOP teachers provide students with frequent opportunities for interaction and discussion. We group students to support content and language objectives, provide sufficient wait time for student responses, and appropriately clarify concepts in a student's first language, if possible and as necessary. Practice and application is a SIOP component. SIOP teachers provide hands-on materials and or manipulatives and include activities for students to apply their content and language knowledge through all language skills, reading, writing, listening, and speaking. And on practice and application, especially for multilingual learners, but I'd say usually for all students, immediate practice so that I'm not teaching on Monday and then reviewing on Wednesday and having a test on Friday. At the end of Monday's lesson, I need to know that they got it before I am going on to Tuesday, which may be building on what I was teaching. Uh, the previous day. So we need that immediate application. And sometimes it's simply turning to each other and discussing, or it's simply doing a little quick ride or whatever you want students to do. It doesn't need to be a, a huge, huge piece, but we need to give them immediate practice after we learn something. Um, lesson delivery component. SIOP teachers implement lessons that clearly support content and language objectives. They use appropriate pacing, not too fast, not too slow, and they have, have high levels of student engagement. And we in SIOP suggest or require 90 to 100% student engagement. And that doesn't mean that they're, you know, every single second, every single student is engaged. It means we reach for high levels of student engagement because we can afford nothing less. And if students aren't engaged, there's so much research showing that high levels of student engagement yield benefits in overall student achievement and performance. So why wouldn't we shoot for the moon and have the highest level of student achievement as we can have? And then our eighth component is review and assessment. SIOP teachers provide a comprehensive review of key vocabulary and content concepts, regularly give specific academic uh, feedback to students, and we con conduct informal assessment of student comprehension and learning throughout the lesson. So that's a really fast walk through SIOP, but in terms of how does a reading lesson look like, that's how a reading lesson would look like. That's what we would be having in our SIOP lessons for the teachers SIOP teachers are, this is the way SIOP teachers are, are functioning as a literacy lesson. Right. It really lends itself. Like you need to have, for, for every reading lesson, you need to have very clear objectives, right? Both content, what are they reading about, but also the language, right? Right. You need the background information. Then you have to have them have the strategies. You have, mm -hmm. it has to be comprehensible. There has to be scaffolding. And then this application. So really, Really great reading instruction has all these components. In exactly. It. And for those of you who are new at SIOP, we, it's, it's a process and it takes time. So becoming a high implementing SIOP teacher, which we refer to as you know, really bringing in these 30 instructional features that are housed within these eight components on a regular basis, that can take two to three years. So this isn't something that is expected overnight. And I, all, I always say to teachers, PSYOP is not about learning everything new. Anything I just said to you, you're, if, you're, if you're new to PSYOP, you may go, well, yeah, that makes sense. This is what we've been taught. This is how we're supposed to teach. But um, it, it, as, as I frequently say, this isn't about learning anything. Well, PSYOP is not about learning all new things. It's about taking your instruction and refining it and making it more purposeful, more consistent, 
um, and in some ways more systematic. I mean, you really have a plan that you're, that you're going to stick to. You're gonna, the students know what the expectations are because we write our objectives for our students first and foremost. So they know what they're to learn and be able to do at the end of a lesson. Right, there are clear intentions. Like it, <clears throat> yes, clear like, intentions. Right, SIOP makes our, our time with our kids so intentional so that, that those 45 minutes, those 90 minutes, every single minute is used. Or 10 minutes or 15 minutes. <clears throat> Exactly. Yeah, you're not going to get 30 features in a 15 minute lesson, elementary teachers, but throughout the course of the day, you're continually ensuring that the students are, are having this kind of instruction that is intentional and purposeful. Yeah. Right. Would you now, would you be able to share with us like a lesson that you did with your student that you, you're he's so lucky, by the way? Oh, thank you. Um, well, just, just to give you a little bit of more information, um, because of COVID, I was concerned that, as many people have been concerned about students, especially little ones who are learning how to read and having a whole year that, that uh, they haven't really had instruction that's been real hands-on for them, and especially kids who struggle and so forth. So um, I contacted a friend of mine who had, uh, she has a center that's a music center, but they decided to implement some tutoring services during COVID when everybody was online and students needed some one-on-one -on -one instruction. And I actually did some lessons um, on online as well, especially to middle school kids. And so I was doing some Zoom lessons with them. But as soon as I was got my vaccination and um, could, could ensure that parents that I was safe and so forth, um, that we were able to, um, we masked um, all last year, of course, we masked in lessons. Um, and we're still masking for some students uh, right now. But um, I just started this intervention and assessment program, or excuse me, intervention and enrichment program in reading. And I've had students, um, one of my girls that I worked with last year, started high school this year, and her parents just wanted to ensure that she had a bit of a boost in comprehension, didn't have serious reading problems, but she needed to develop some skills, to some study skills and so forth. And so that's kind of one end child going into um, into high school. And then <clears throat> I've had children in first grade as well. And, and uh, one student that I, I was just talking to Tom beforehand a little bit about him, and he came as a neurodiverse, having a, a number of different issues from speech impairment to vision problems to um, uh, chromosome deletion and so forth, and came in as a non-reader last year. And so for him, I began with the uh, age-old 80 years of research on, um, on language experience approach, which I've talked about and written about, um, has been around for a, a long, long time, in which we started with his um, uh, dictating stories to me, and then I wrote them down, and that became the text that he read from the very beginning, because he couldn't read the word when I assessed him. I, I had a hard time assessing because he, he couldn't read the word me. And I tried to work with just some consonant vowel consonant words, and he, he knew the alphabet just by identification only, but didn't have a sense of sound symbol at all. And he was a second grader, eight years old when I started with him. He's now a third grader. He is reading and writing. He is not to grade level. I don't know, I, you know, I don't, his mom has asked, you know, what is the future? And I said, he'll go as far as he can go. He's smart as a whip. And he just caught with his dad, like a 20 pound salmon this week. <laughs> And I was showing Tan earlier a full page of dictated story yesterday uh, about the adventures. He called this the heavy salmon. And the heavy salmon was tugging so hard, my arm almost went out of my arm socket. My dad told me, son, turn around. Your rod has a fish on it. I turned around and started reeling. My dad took the rod out of my hands and started reeling so fast. The fish got near the boat and a, a friend of theirs, um, Mr. B, netted it. I bonked the fish with pliers so hard and it was shocked. We came home at five o'clock and we made some dinner. We had twice baked potatoes and salmon. 
The salmon was so good. I want to eat it every day. The end. <laughs> so this story tomorrow when I meet with him for our lesson will be how we start. And I can pull words out of it to go into his word bank. Um, he will be able to read it. We read it after I printed it. And he goes so fast. He went yesterday. He said, I'm sorry, I'm going so fast. <laughs> he was so excited telling the story. And so um, this, for these youngsters, uh, this has been the way we have started. And you can use, you can use language experience approach um, with any student. You know what I'll do? I'm going to, I wrote an article about working with him with language experience approach for the California Reader. And I will send that to you after we get off and you can post that as well. Because um, it talks about a little bit and you can see some examples of his writing early on um, and where he started and where he is now. He will be able to read this. He'll, he'll, he, there will be some memorization as he, he'll, he'll remember what he said because what we, what, we, what we say we can learn to read. Um, now, of course, he's in books. And yes, I'm using some little, some leveled books. Um, Heinemann graciously donated some to our center. And so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm using some leveled books with him along with other books of his choice. So our lesson is half, you said, what's the lesson look like? It's half word work. We use words their way and word sorts, a lot of word sorting, starting with CBC. And he's now up to almost ready to go into within, within word, looking at IE, EA and so forth words. We, we do word sorts. And then we spend the second half on reading and writing and actually reading and writing each lesson. So um 45 minute lesson that's basically what we do just thinking about your lesson with him with the the language experience approach you could see all the components there you could see the content objective the language objective you could yep. see the uh, background information that he's providing you uh, yes. you can see the application of the strategies uh, the, the practice sorry the practice that he's doing like well, the yeah, I was just going to say, and Elliot also, in terms of building background, you always have a shared experience first. So it's either a book. One day we went, he was really restless one day. So one day we went out in the back of the, the building and just, we did a, just an investigation. I mean, oh, there's a trash can. Oh, there's a this. Oh, there's a that. And then we came in and worked with those words and that, so that, then he, then he dictated his story was about our adventure outside in the parking lot, believe it or not. Um, so anything can be a shared experience and that, that builds that background then for the subsequent story. So excuse me for interrupting, but that I just thought of that. Well, I have two final questions and they're pretty brief. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what's, why the urgency for reading? Well, it's hard, you know, part of me wants to say, we've been at this for so long, why does it seem urgent? You know, I don't see that it's urgent. I think that the urgency to me and why I really wanted to delve into this and, and use these and, and, really, and really learn from these scholars that have written the, these wonderful articles is because as teachers, we need to know the difference between the simple view of reading and the act and a more active view of reading. Um, we know the difference if we're, we need to know the difference if we're going to make a difference. And if we don't, and we just subscribe and we follow what's on, and when I'm talking about media, I mean, it's been like PBS, it's been like, you know, there've been a, a number of legitimate media sources that, that um, have kind of fallen into this, not having all the information. And I mentioned the PBS, I'll, I'll give a quick example here. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate and blessed to be a member of the, the Reading Hall of Fame, which is a group of scholars from all over the world. And I mention this simply because there was a, 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 um, 
show on PBS last year about dyslexia that was from our perspective, and this is this is over a hundred living members right now throughout the world, um, was really advocating a very simple view of, of dyslexia and some inaccuracies and painting a broad brush in terms of you know inaccurate numbers and so forth. I don't want to get into all the details, but we wrote a letter and, and we took a stand and we wrote a letter and it was signed by, it was signed by, I don't know, 60 some people, some of the names that I've been mentioning today, we signed this letter and said, this is inaccurate. And we, we would love to help you have more in, you know, accurate information. Will you please, um, you know, number one, we'd like you to correct what you've said, but number two, we'd be more than happy to, to work with you and to help you on having a more balanced view of this. They, they wrote a nice letter back and said, thank you very much, but um, no, we stand by what we reported. So here we took a stand and, and it kind of backfired on us and that nothing happened, but at least we took a stand. So that's what I really would like you to know. You know, we need to know the difference between these models because we want to make a difference. And the way that we do that is to be informed. Um, I started at the beginning and I said, be a reasoned, knowledgeable voice in your school and district. So if, if parents aren't understanding, if your local newspaper is not understanding, if you hear something on the radio or certainly social media, you know, try be able to have research at your fingertips, you know, and not, and I'm not saying be a know-it-all, I'm just saying be informed yourself. And that starts with what you do in your own classroom. Um, the active view, view may seem like a lot more work. It's not, it's just looking at the reading process more holistically instead of bits and pieces it's easy to teach a phonics lesson and say check i'm done okay now i'm going to move to my comprehension lesson check i'm done but that's not how language works and that's not how language development and reading development work so so do your homework you know read some of these and or some of the other research articles about the science of reading there are 50 of them to choose from you know start with one arm yourself with information and, and please remember that new research on reading doesn't undo old research in reading. We are building upon Emmett Betts' book or, or Edmund Huey's book in 2008. You know, we're building on that early work as we learn more. I mean, that, that 2000, not 2008, 1908, that 1908 Emmett Betts' book is fascinating reading to see where his head was and where, and where uh, Betts was in 1946. It's fascinating. Um, so new research doesn't undo. We just continue to, to grow our knowledge base. Um, I think also accepting that the science of reading is not the science of teaching reading and that we need more understanding of research-based instructional approaches. Um, that was Tim Shanahan's biggest uh, takeaway was we need to have a science of reading instruction. And so again, if you are a graduate student or you're considering where, you're, where you wanna go in your next chapter in terms of graduate work, this might be an, an area of investigation that you could really contribute to our field. Um, and then when needed, take a stand. Um, you can take a stand when you're informed. If we just kind of follow along then and we're uninformed, then, then we can't really take a stand. And so you can take a stand. I, I, I want to conclude with a with a quote, a quote. <clears throat> and this is from Carl Sagan. And Carl Sagan says, "Quote: The history of science teaches us that the most we can hope for is successive improvement in our understanding. 
learning from our mistakes with the proviso that absolute certainty will all, always elude us. <laughs> so we may never know absolutely the best way to teach reading, but we know a lot about how reading works and how re readers learn to read. Um, so I, I say thank you to Carl Sagan because the same can be said of reading research. We will also always be searching for answers. And if you're searching for answers, then you're not going to fall into just kind of following along what, what's being said in the media or in social media or in the press. Be a leader, be a leader, be knowledgeable. Right. Well, I could tell that you really care about this because you spent the time to to organize your notes and organize your ideas and then support it with research so that we can be sound and uh, informed educators. Well, thank you. Yes, that that's that's a, that's a hope. And that's always a hope. I mean, that's I, I've, I've been teaching now. I don't know. I just counted. I was actually brushing my teeth this morning and thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm in my sixth year, sixth decade of teaching. And and that's a long time. So I've seen lots come and go, you know, over the years. So maybe it, it kind of takes that backward view to say, wow, we're still having some of these same arguments that we were having when Rudolph Flesch went wrote Johnny why Johnny can't read. Why are why are we still having these same arguments? Yeah. Because the media likes to polarize things. For I think so. <laughs> maybe so. But educators don't need to. Right. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to end with this last question. And this particular question is only reserved for the most prolific guests on the podcast after and you're one of those. So after 40 years of research, 60 years of, of serving as a teacher, what do you know is true about working with multilinguals? Oh, wow. I'm going to say I haven't been a teacher for 60 years. I think I'm in my 53rd, but I think it's the sixth decade. Not that old, but I'm pretty old. Okay, I just had to clarify that. What do I know for sure? I know multilingual learners are students just like any other students. They have needs, but they have assets. And what they bring to the table we have only begun to investigate. And I think one of the most rewarding current trends that I'm seeing is that we are talking a lot, in, especially in our PLNs and in, on Twitter and so forth, about asset-driven instruction. It is so easy to figure out what kids don't know. I mean, and I'm gonna use my little guy as an example. I could list a whole lot of things that, that, are, that he has difficulties with but I can see a bright mind in there and I can see a loving soul and I can see a kid who, who wants to learn. And that goes with any, any student. So we just need to not think about what these youngsters don't bring to the classroom, but learn and capitalize on every single thing you can identify that they do and let them tell you, let them tell you. That's the beauty of language experience approach. They're telling you their world. And you're turning around and putting it into text that they can read and write and talk about. So I think that would be it. I've learned that these kids are bright, they're knowledgeable, they have a wide range of experiences, some of which I can't even imagine, nor would I want to have to go through myself. But that's experiences that we can build on as we teach them. So that would, that would be it. Well, this is what I know for sure about you, 
Dr. Vo. You, in the beginning, you said that you would want to go back to work with your student, Sokia. And I would like you to know that each and every single language specialist out there has their own Sokia, mm -hmm. and you have been helping us work with those students. So thank you so much from your, for the service that comes from your heart. We are better educators because of you and our students like Sokia, you are still serving them through us. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that, Tom. Thank you. And thanks for letting me do this today. It's been great fun and really fun to see you in person. <laughs> Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. There you have it, my friends. For students to learn to read, we need to move from this simple view of reading focused on phonics and decoding to a more active view of reading, which does include phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension. Like Dr. Vogt said, they are different sides of the same coin. Mary Ellen was so gracious in providing lots of slides and research for this presentation. So you can go to the speaker notes and click on the link provided. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Yep.